0: For those whom I haven't met, my name is Matt Morton. I'm the teaching pastor at our Creekside campus. We're going to continue with our series in the book of Matthew this morning, Matthew chapter 8 and 9. So if you've got a Bible you want to get over there, or if you've got a phone, or uh, whatever it is that you use to read the scripture, we're going to be in Matthew 8 and 9. A couple weeks ago, I ran across a story that I had seen some time ago, but remembered it. From 1994, 1994, there was a woman in Orlando, Florida, who made herself a grilled cheese sandwich. Now, that's not a, a shocking thing. Most of us in here, at some point in our lives, have made a grilled cheese sandwich. But this was no ordinary sandwich. She made the sandwich, and she sat down to eat it. And when she took a bite, this is what she saw in her sandwich. Now, I don't know how well you can see that from where you're sitting But it appears that there's a face in the sandwich, more specifically, a woman's face. You can kind of see two eyes up there in the center, a nose, a mouth, and some hair going down off the top of her head. Now, if I had seen this, I don't know what I would have thought, what I would have done. I probably would have just kept eating my lunch and moved on with my life. Uh, But this woman saw it and she concluded that this was a divine sign from God that the Virgin Mary had appeared on her sandwich. So she stopped eating it. You can see, uh, if you look, she took one bite out of the corner and then she wrapped it into a plastic bag and put it in the drawer of her bedside table where it stayed for the next 10 years. Now, according to her, it grew no mold during that time and it blessed her life. Uh, but after 10 years, in 2004, she decided that the world needed to share the miracle of the sandwich. So she pulled it out and she called a reporter who came and he ran a local story about this woman who had the Virgin Mary on her sandwich. Uh, within days, this story was a nationwide sensation picked up by CNN and NBC and ABC, all of the major news providers, ran a story about this sandwich. She put it on eBay, where after a few days, it sold for $28,000 to a company that then would display the sandwich so you could also be a part of this miracle. Now, uh, whenever I read a story sort of like this, I'm intrigued for a few reasons. Uh, First of all, because I think stories like this highlight how badly you and I want to connect with God in some sort of miraculous way. We all want to see a miracle, if we're honest. We all want to be a part of a miracle to the extent that sometimes we might look for miracles in some unusual spots. Uh, But it also, when I read a story like this, it also raises some questions in my mind. One of which is how do I know this is a miracle, right? The skeptic in me goes, how do I know that this is a miracle? I have uh, at times seen what looks like a a face or maybe an animal in my food. And for me, I just kept eating it, right? And went on with my day. I didn't presume that it was a miracle. How do I know this isn't just burn marks in a certain pattern or something along those lines? What, What is a miracle? That question is central to what we're going to talk about this morning, and the reason is as we look at the miracles of Jesus in Matthew 8 and 9, uh, we want to know what is a miracle, what constitutes a miracle. Uh, Theologians and Bible scholars don't always agree on a definition. So I'm going to offer my own definition this morning as we get started, and I will say by my own definition, I think this sandwich is disqualified. That's just me. I'll let you make the determination. Here's my definition. A miracle is a supernatural event in which God reveals something about himself or his purposes in the world. All right, so let me break that down for just a minute. It's first of all, a supernatural event. All right, what I mean by that is that it is more than merely natural. A miracle could include natural elements. So let me give you an illustration. If you look back at the 10 plagues in Egypt before the Israelites left Egypt, you will see that one of those plagues was a hailstorm, right? Giant hail fell from the sky into the land of Egypt. Now, hailstorms are natural occurrences generally, aren't they? All of us have probably experienced or been in a hailstorm. In and of itself, a hailstorm is nothing super natural, right? But, but the Bible calls this hailstorm in the book of Exodus a miracle or a wonder. The reason is because it was preceded by a word from God that he would send hail at a certain time to a certain place for a certain Reason, right, that God was sending this hailstorm as a sign to Pharaoh that he was to let God's people go, that God was establishing a new nation through Abraham's descendants who would leave and go to the promised land. So the plagues were Pharaoh's sign that God is real, God is powerful, and Pharaoh, you need to let them go. So it, it goes beyond merely natural to supernatural. All right, let me offer another point of contrast to help us. Uh, often we're accustomed to referring, perhaps, to the birth of a baby as a miracle. I have three children, and to my wife and me, those children are all miracles, right? They feel miraculous to us. And certainly, God is the author of life. God is involved in each and every life, right? But in and of itself, the, the conception and birth of a child is natural. It happens in the natural course of the world, all right? So we don't, we don't, properly call it a miracle, right? On the other hand, a baby who is born to a 90-year-old woman after God had said, Sarah, at this time next year, you will have a baby in fulfillment of my promise to Abraham that through his descendants, I will bless all of the nations, right? That's a miracle. It's beyond merely natural, but it is supernatural, and God is using this sign to communicate something about his character and what he's doing in the world. Right, this also helps us understand why at certain points throughout biblical history, there are more miracles than at other points in biblical history. Right, so we mentioned the Exodus, whole lot of miracles as God is saying something new. He's forming a new nation and doing something new. But then we have other periods of time in biblical history where there are very few miracles. There may be some, but not many. So like the kingdoms of Saul and David and Solomon, you see a few miracles, but not this burst of miraculous and prophetic activity. Uh, during the exile especially kind of during the tail end of the exile we see a burst of prophetic and miraculous activity through guys like Daniel and his friends in Babylon where God is saying I am about to do something new I'm going to bring the people back to the land and there there are these promises that really kick up in earnest about the coming Messiah and his kingdom so all of these miracles accompany what God says he will do. And then we have several hundred years, really, of virtual silence, very few miracles, no prophetic activity that we're aware of. And then Jesus appears on the scene. And of course, anybody who reads the Gospels goes, uh, with the coming of Jesus, there's a burst of miraculous activity. Most of the miracles performed by Jesus. Why? Because God is doing something brand new in Jesus that he's never done before. God is bringing a new message. That the Son of God is now made flesh, that the Word now dwells among us, and that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah, right? The one is here who will reign not only over Israel, but over the entire universe, right? And so Jesus performs miracles to validate who God says that He is, that He is God's promised King. So as we look at Matthew chapter 8 and 9, we're going to see this in the miracles of Jesus, that the miracles of Christ prove his authority and provide a preview of his kingdom. All right, prove his authority and provide a preview of his kingdom. Uh, here's, here's what we'll see. Matthew 8 and 9 is the most packed section of miracles in the book of Matthew. It's not a, a simple coincidence that it follows right on the heels of the Sermon on the Mount. Because if you remember a few weeks ago when Blake talked about the Sermon on the Mount, one of the things he pointed out was in the Sermon on the Mount, what is Jesus doing? Well, Jesus was laying out, here are the values of God's kingdom, right? Here's what righteousness looks like in God's kingdom. And then as you get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus actually positioned himself to be the king. To say that there's a narrow gate, only a few will enter through the narrow gate, and ultimately he will say the people who uh, believe in the values I'm proclaiming and trust in me, they have a foundation for their life that will not be shaken, and Jesus will be the one to reach through that narrow gate and pull us through. So Jesus positions himself as the Messiah King, the Son of God, who will set up the kingdom he's been talking about. Right as you get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, then, you have this little summary by Matthew where he says, the people were amazed because Jesus spoke to them as one having authority, not as their teachers of the law. And then in Matthew 8 and 9, Jesus will validate his authority. Because in Matthew 8 and 9, every time Jesus issues a command to anyone or anything, that person or thing obeys, right? And Jesus demonstrates he is firmly in control of the universe. Uh, sin, he removes sin. He casts out demons. He calms a storm. He heals sickness. He raises people from the dead, right? Every time Jesus says something uh, that ought to happen, it happens. And so he demonstrates his authority to make the claims that he's making, right? But also in doing so, he's giving a preview of this is what life is going to look like in my kingdom. Jesus says, I will use my power to transform the world into everything you have ever dreamed it ought to be. There will be no more enemies of God, no more suffering, no more death, no more Satan, no more sin. Everything you and I hate will be banished from Jesus' kingdom. All right, so that as we look at the miracles of Christ, there are a couple of things that it ought to uh, produce in us. One is hope. Right? One is hope. Here's why. Because Jesus is in control of everything in the universe. You and I are in control of nothing. Okay? Jesus issues commands over the universe and the universe obeys. We issue commands to other people and nothing happens. And so you and I live in often a sense of anxiety and fear and despair because we can't control our lives much less the world. We can't control when we're born. We can't control when we die. To some extent, perhaps, we we have control over the way we react to the world around us. But even in that, we find that it's hard, hard to control the way we think and believe and feel. And yet Jesus steps into that chaos and begins issuing commands and everything obeys. So we have this hope that the day is coming when Jesus will come back. And at his word, the world will once again be like God made it to be before sin entered. So we have hope that produces in us then the same response that the disciples had on the Sea of Galilee when Jesus calmed the storm, and that is worship. That the miracles of Christ call us to fall on our knees in worship of the King. To say we can trust him to be in control, and we can trust him to banish all the enemies of God and bring a kingdom of perfect peace. Right, that's what we're going to see in Matthew 8 and 9 as Jesus Proves his authority and provides a preview of his kingdom. Now, let me just give you a sense of all the miracles in Matthew 8 and 9 before we read some of them. There are 10 miracle accounts in Matthew 8 and 9. For lack of a better way to say it, this is Jesus moving through his world and he is kicking tail and taking names, right? Everywhere he goes, he performs a miracle. There's the healing of the leper, there's the centurion servant. Peter's mother-in-law, the many at evening, that's just a a small paragraph in which it says Jesus went about casting out demons and healing the sick from those who asked, right? Calming the storm on the Sea of Galilee. There's two demon-possessed men at Gadarenes, the healing of the paralytic, The raising of Jairus' daughter and the healing of a bleeding woman, the healing of two blind men, and the healing of the demon-possessed mute. And again, as we move through this passage, we will see Jesus proving his authority. I want you to see all throughout this passage, the word authority or the word obey, they're going to come back over and over and over again. There's also a Greek uh, case called the imperative case. That is a command in Greek. You'll see a lot of commands. Jesus commanding things to do something over and over, to prove his authority and provide a preview of his kingdom. All right, so as we say, first of all, these miracles prove Christ's authority. right, they demonstrate that Jesus is who he said he was, and he will do all that he says he will do, right? And again, we mentioned at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it mentions that Jesus taught with authority. Okay, That is in direct contrast to the teachers of the day says, as, and not as their teachers of the law. The reason is this, the teachers of the law in Jesus' day typically would do what you might call pearl stringing, all right? And what pearl stringing was, was these teachers of the law didn't get up and, and write their own sermons, right? Instead, what they would do is they would look at the scripture, and they would look at their favorite rabbi's words, and they would read the Bible, and then they would just kind of string together the best quotes from their favorite teachers, and that would be the message they would present, right? Jesus gets up and he teaches straight from the mouth of God as one who has authority, and then he backs up that authority with what he does. I don't know if you've ever known a person who makes claims about themselves or their life that they can't back up with what they do. We have an expression for that in our culture. It's called writing, uh, what is it? Your mouth is writing checks that your body cannot cash, right? Those of you who are of a certain age, you know what a check is, right? And you know how you would go about cashing one, okay? But the expression simply means you're saying things you can't validate. I had an acquaintance in junior high who used to do this all the time. He would make up dramatic stories about his abilities and his life. The most dramatic one I remember was he said, One day, my family, we went to the beach and I went swimming in the ocean. And all of a sudden, a shark began to chase me as I was swimming. And I'm not making up that he told us this story, by the way. He said, A shark began to chase me and I began to swim. And for a while, I was able to outswim the shark. But then he started to catch up, and fortunately, just at that pivotal moment, my dad showed up in his helicopter and dropped a rope, and I grabbed on, and we flew away, right? And I remember thinking, I don't think that's your life. I think that's from Rambo, right? I I think you made that up. But constantly, he would share those kind of stories that he couldn't validate, right? Jesus never does that. If Jesus says, I can do something, then Jesus will move into his world and prove he has the power over the universe to make it happen. And so in multiple areas, over every possible enemy in the world, Jesus demonstrates his authority, right? First of all, he'll demonstrate his authority in this passage over sickness. Look with me at chapter 8, starting in verse 5. And when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him, and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under, look at this, authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. See, why Jesus is astonished at this centurion's faith is simple, because the centurion recognizes what even many Jewish people did not recognize about Jesus, that he was more than merely an earthly king, but that Jesus actually has authority. The the centurion says, look, I'm a soldier over other soldiers. I tell them to go to a place, they go. I tell them to come, they come. Jesus, you're just like that. If you command it, my servant will be healed. Why? Because Jesus is the ruler of the universe, and physical proximity does not prevent the ruler of the universe from healing somebody. If you are who you say you are, Jesus, and I believe you are, then you just say the word. And so Jesus demonstrates his power over sickness. He tells the man, go home. Your servant is healed. All right, now, now I see that, and I think, man, that is fantastic that Jesus can heal sickness, but I also realize, like maybe you do, that, that sickness is really just like a, a little cousin of death, isn't it? Right? Because, because the real problem is we get sick, and sickness reminds us that our bodies do not work like they are supposed to work, and that one day all of us, unless Jesus returns first, will be sick enough to die. So as we move throughout Matthew 8 and 9, Jesus doesn't only demonstrate that he can heal sickness, right? Because this servant died again but he demonstrates he also has authority over death itself. Look at chapter 9, verses 23 to 26. When Jesus came into the official's house and saw the flute players and the crowd in noisy disorder, he said, leave, for the girl has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. But when the crowd had been sent out, he entered and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. This news spread throughout all that land. There there are three people besides himself that Jesus raises from the dead in the gospel narratives. There's this little girl. Her father's name is Jairus. We know that from the book of Mark. There is also the son of the widow of Nain. And then, of course, there's Lazarus. Uh, who we read about in John chapter 11 in that great I am passage where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, right? He who believes in me will never die. Jesus steps into his world and he faces head on the worst enemy you can imagine, which is death. And he says, little girl, get up. And she rises from the dead in a demonstration of his power not only over sickness, but over death, right? When Jesus issues orders, everybody obeys, even death. Proves his authority over sickness, proves his authority over death, proves his authority over Satan. For the sake of time, we're not going to read verses 28 to 34, but many of you remember the story of the men at Gadarenes who are (coughs) demon-possessed And they are, they are harassed by these demons and they're hurting themselves. And Jesus comes and the the demons recognize him and they say, Hey, please do not send us to the abyss, son of God. Allow us to go into the pigs. Even these demons have to ask permission from Jesus, right? They need a hall pass before they can go anywhere. And you see that throughout the Bible, that Satan is not God's equal at all in terms of power and authority. He has to ask God to go anywhere. These demons say, please send us to the pigs. And Jesus says, go, one word. And they go into the pigs. The pigs rush off a cliff and drown. When Jesus sends Satan away, Satan goes away. And so he moves through his world and everything Jesus commands, obeys, sickness, Death, Satan, sin itself. Look at chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city. And they brought him a paralytic lying on a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has, has what, authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he got up and went home. But when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God, who had given such authority to men. Alright, right, which is easier to say? Well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven, right? Because I can walk around all day saying that to you, and there's no way for you to validate that it's actually happened, right? Because I don't have the same authority from God that Jesus had as the Son of God. So Jesus says, look, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven, but, but, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He looks at the guy, he says, you get up, you pick up that mat, you go home. And the guy does it, and he walks away. And everybody goes, he really does have authority to forgive sins. All right, what is Jesus highlighting here? Okay, It is this, that sickness and death ultimately spring from the problem of sin. And right, what I mean is this, if you have the sniffles this morning, I'm not saying that you did something to deserve it that the rest of us did not. Instead, what I'm saying is in a very broad sense, all sickness, all death entered the world when Adam and Eve chose to disobey God. And like Romans 5 tells us, because of sin, death entered the world, and it spread to all men. It spread to all men, just like a cancer. And all of us are condemned to sickness and death. And Jesus says the root issue is you need forgiveness of sins from the only one who can forgive to offer eternal life. And he shows his authority over the root problem that all of us face, which is we're separated from God and destined for death and hell because of sin. Right? Authority over sickness, death, Satan, sin, and then nature itself. Chapter 8, verses 23 to 27. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with the waves. But Jesus himself was asleep. And they came to him and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. He said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed and said, What kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea, look what they do, they obey him. Why do the winds and sea obey Jesus? Because Jesus was with God in the beginning, as the Word of God, when the world was created. And He's the author of the universe. So the universe responds to His command. Right? So what we see is everything Jesus commands obeys Him. He walks into the world and He says, Sickness be gone, Satan be gone, death be gone, sin be gone natural chaos get out of here he tells the wind and the waves itself cut it out and they obey and again this is so critical for us because as we said you and i command the world around us to do stuff and it does nothing right how many of us have tried to control our children how many of you have had somebody say to you control that child and you say how am i supposed to control another person How many of you who are married have tried to get your spouse to change their behavior by what you say? Does it work? How many of us struggle with sin that we can't even seem to get a handle on because we still live in a fallen world? And so we go, I I have a hard time even controlling my thoughts. Over Christmas, I bought for my son a little inexpensive drone that he could fly outside, four little propellers and a little camera, remote control. And so uh, I bought him one. I thought that because I would want to play with him, I needed to buy myself one as well. So I bought one for me as a responsible dad. I knew it was the right thing to do. So we we will go outside and we'll play with these drones together. And the first week that Samuel had his drone, it got stuck in a tree in our neighborhood. There's a lot of trees in our neighborhood. And so I told him subsequently, I said, Samuel, when you're flying your drone, you need to keep it low if we're on our street. Because if it goes too high, it's going to land in a tree. And I don't know next time if I'll be Able to get it out. Right. So we, we go out there, we're flying these drones. I'm flying mine, he's flying his. And I say, remember, keep it low. So I start flying. A couple of seconds later, I notice that he's pushing the boundaries. Right? The thing is going 10, 15 feet up in the air. I say, Samuel, a little bit further down. He goes, Oh yeah, he brings it back down. I, I turn my head again. I look back over. 15, 20, 25 feet in the air. I said, Son, keep it low. Or it's gonna hit a tree. Oh yeah, okay. So turn around. 25, 35, 40 feet in the air, and now it is hovering over the highest tree on our street. And I said, son, you have to bring it down. Move it away from the tree. And he looks at me with panic in his voice, and he's got his hands, and he's moving these controls, and nothing's happening. And he said, I can't control it. And it fell, and it hooked itself on the highest limb of the (laughs) highest tree on our street. Now, I got it back. That's a whole other story for a whole other sermon. But every time I think about that, I think, man, isn't that just how our lives are? You move the controls and you're like, why are these not working? How many of you graduated college with a five-year and a 10-year and a 20-year plan and you said, here's the job I'm going to get and here's how I'm going to chart a path to success and fame and impact. I'm going to marry this kind of person and have perfect children who will obey my commands. (laughs) My life will be an unbroken string of happiness and success from graduation to the grave. How's that worked out? We, we put our hands on the controls and we say, I got this. And then we go, you know what? I, I don't. I control so little about anything. And Jesus walks into his world and he says, that's all right. I control everything. Everything. Every enemy you face submits to Jesus' command. Everything we hate. Jesus has the power to abolish. So these miracles we see preview, or excuse me, prove Christ's authority. All right, but, but there's more, because if all they do is prove that Jesus is strong, that's not really great news. Okay, and the reason is because there are a lot of strong people, powerful people in our world, who use their authority for evil. Right? There are corrupt leaders and evil dictators. Right, So strength in and of itself is not great news. But what we see is Jesus says, it's not just that I control everything, it's that I will use the power I have to bring God's kingdom. And so these miracles not only prove Christ's authority, but they they preview Christ's kingdom. A kingdom of perfection, a kingdom of life, a kingdom without sin, a kingdom without Satan. And through his miracles, Jesus shows us a picture of what his world will be like when he comes back. How many of you would recognize this fellow here? Okay. This is Bob Ross. Obviously, some of you recognize Bob Ross. Uh, he is a painter. For many years, he also had a show on PBS. And I love watching this show. It's on Netflix now. The reason I love it is because I believe it is the single most relaxing television show on the face of planet Earth. As he paints, he has this very, very, calm voice. And he'll say things like, we're just going to put some happy little trees right over <laughs> here, right? Some happy clouds right up here. See? See how nice that is? And even when he cleans his brush, he kind of whacks it on the easel. And it's a very displeasing sound, this sort of thump, and it just, you just go, man, that's so nice the way he does that. And you look at the pictures and you think, wherever that is, I want to live there. Wherever that is, it doesn't look totally real, but I want to live in that place. I found a quote from Bob Ross, and he said this. He said, I got a letter from somebody here a while back, and they said, Bob, everything in your world seems to be happy. That's for sure. That's why I paint. It's because I can create the kind of world that I want, and I can make this world as happy as I want it. Shoot, if you want bad stuff, watch the news. Okay, what's he getting at? On that canvas, I don't draw the world that is. I draw the world that should be, that I want. Okay, Jesus, through his miracle, says this isn't only the world that I want to be. It's the world that will be by the power of Jesus Christ when he returns. You you may or may not realize that virtually every miracle Jesus performed was some sort of fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy about the coming Messiah and kingdom of God. So as you move through books like Isaiah and Jeremiah, you see these beautiful promises of a coming king and kingdom where there will be peace, there will be no more hunger, there will be no more death, there will be no more sickness, there will be no more enemy, and all of these promises are fulfilled in Jesus Christ so that in his miracles, he's saying, I am the king and that is my kingdom. So as you look through these miracles, here's what we see about Christ's kingdom. There will be no more sickness. Look at Isaiah chapter 35. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. Just here in Matthew 8 and 9, Jesus heals the blind. Jesus heals the lame paralytic. Jesus heals the mute man. Elsewhere in Matthew, Jesus heals the deaf. In fact, when John the Baptist was in prison, imprisoned by Herod, facing execution, He sent a disciple to Jesus. And the disciple said, look, are you the one that's supposed to come or should we expect someone else? Right? And John's question was a fair one because John's thought is, my kingdom experience is not working out so awesome right now. I'm in jail. I'm probably going to die. Matthew chapter 11, here's how Jesus responds. Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. That should look familiar. Jesus says, I'm the one. I'm that king. In my kingdom, there will be no more sickness. In Christ's kingdom, there will be no more death. Death will be abolished. When Jesus raises up Jairus' daughter, he declares that death has been put on notice to be terminated. And he would prove it when he himself would rise from the dead as the first fruits of all those who trust in Jesus. Isaiah chapter 25, and on this mountain he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time. Look at the book of Revelation. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. No more funerals in Jesus' kingdom. No more sickness and death. No more watching our loved ones succumb to the curse of death. No more fear for our own mortality. No more worry about the day when we ourselves will lie in a grave. No more sickness. No more death. He'll bring a kingdom of no more natural chaos. As Jesus stood on the Sea of Galilee and he said to the wind and the waves, Stop! And they stopped. He demonstrated he has not only the power but the intention to make the world work like it was supposed to work. In Matthew 14, when Jesus took five loaves and two fish and he divided them up and he fed 5,000 people, he demonstrates that in his world, in his kingdom, nobody's going to be hungry. No more poverty. The earth will produce what it's supposed to produce. See, ever since the fall, ever since sin entered the world, the world itself has been cursed. Genesis chapter 3, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. The world itself is broken. About a week ago, my wife said, Matt, our lawn looks terrible. It needs some attention. There are more weeds than actual grass on the lawn. And I went out to confirm, and she was correct, Right. And as I stood there, I remembered several years ago in another house we lived in, I was out in my lawn one day and I was putting the weed and feed stuff on the lawn, trying to kill the weeds and uh, bring the grass to life. And there was an elderly neighbor of mine, maybe in his mid seventies, who came out and he said, what are you doing, son? And I said, I'm trying to kill the weeds and cause the grass to grow. And he chuckled at me. And he said, a few years ago, I told my wife, as long as it's green, I'm good. He said, look, I've just, I've given it up. I can't win. The weeds will always come back because we live in a world where weeds grow more readily than the good stuff. Why is it that mosquitoes and fire ants and hornets and terrible bugs seem to proliferate when the stuff that we want to grow doesn't? Why is the bald eagle endangered and yet the Kroger parking lot is full of grackles? The world is broken. It's not like it's supposed to be. And so we look around and we say, look, there is a curse in place. And Jesus, again, he stands out in the middle of the storm and he calms it. He says, this is my world. And everything broken about it, I'm going to abolish. So when you get to the book of Revelation, there will no longer be any curse. It won't exist. Our bodies and this world will function like they're supposed to, right on schedule, producing right what they ought to produce. So no more natural chaos in Christ's kingdom. And then fourthly, no more Satan. The great enemy of God himself will be banished and put to death. Revelation chapter 20, and the devil who deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Right? As Jesus casts out demons, he's demonstrating not only does he have the power, but the intention of removing Satan from this world forever so that sin will never be reintroduced, so that sickness and death can be gone forever. No more sickness, no more death, no more natural chaos, no more Satan. Every enemy banished. So that in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul would say he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh grave, where's your victory? And so Jesus moved into his world and he demonstrated his power. And then he said, I'm going to use this power to bring a kingdom like the one you've always dreamed. All who know Jesus Christ will be a part of his kingdom where everything you hate won't be there anymore. Everything you're afraid of, every brokenness in your heart, Every sin you can't defeat, it'll be gone. Jesus says, I'm in charge, and I'm bringing that kind of world. And then he says, watch as I paint it. It's not just that you're going to want to step into it. For everybody who knows Jesus, you're going to step right in. Jesus' miracles prove his authority and provide a preview of his kingdom. All right, so what do we do with that as we prepare to go? Let me offer a couple of thoughts for us this morning. First one is this. Rejoice in hope. Rejoice in hope. If you know Jesus Christ, you have a real hope. And I don't just mean the kind of hope that says, man, I really, really hope that's going to happen. All right? we have a confident Certainty that the day is coming when Jesus will return and establish his kingdom and everything we fear and everything that we hate will be abolished. And so every morning, if you know Jesus Christ, you have the opportunity to wake up and you can ask this question in expectation. Here's the question, is it today? Is it today? It's today the day. Oh, maybe not today. Maybe tomorrow. Is today the day? Every single day we wake up in confident hope and expectation knowing that one day the answer to that question will be, yeah, it's today. And so in the midst of our trial and sickness and death and pain and sin, we rejoice in hope. At this moment... My my own dad is struggling with cancer, and I know that there are many of you in this room that either you are or you have relatives who are struggling with terminal illnesses, right? And and, and I hate hate it, right? Because barring some kind of miracle, it, it could be terminal, right? And I share that not to say, feel sorry for me. I share that to say, that's the common human experience of everyone in this room. We're all terminal. Barring the miracle of God. But I wake up and I rejoice in hope because the day is coming. Whatever happens, Dad will rise up from the grave and meet Jesus in the air. Everyone who has fallen asleep in Christ, including you and me. So we rejoice in hope. And then we, like the disciples, worship the King. We worship the king just as they did on the Sea of Galilee. We fall on our knees and we say, you are the son of God. All right, what kind of man is this? The only man who is God in human flesh. And we thank him for his power. And we thank him for his kingdom. Day after day, until we wake up and say, is it today? And the answer is, yep, today's the day. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful for your word. Father, we are grateful for your son, Jesus, that in him all who believe have eternal life. Lord, there may be some in here this morning who do not know you yet through Jesus Christ. I pray that it would be clear this morning that Christ died for our sin and arose again so that every person who believes in him for forgiveness of sins, has eternal life, just as we saw when we celebrated baptism earlier in the morning. Thank you that we are united with Jesus in his death and united with him in his resurrection. For all who know him, I pray we would rejoice in hope, look for his coming, and day after day, worship our King. Father, we thank you and we pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.